Welcome to New Lands. Um, this is a new thing by me. Uh, I I've been organising talks and things for quite a while. I'm working at Con Conway Hall for a few years. And um, I wanted to try um, putting on some talks that basically the idea behind them is that you, your, your curiosity is piqued and you see the world differently. And that's the only idea behind the talks. Hence the name New Lands. Um, it's also named after a book by a guy called Charles Fort, which is me keeping it real with my other occupations. Uh, so this is the first one. Thank you for Conway Hall for hosting us. Really hoping that in a moment, someone from Conway Hall is going to turn up with some warm wine that they're going to try and sell to you. And then I can also... So, our speaker this evening is John Grimrod. Um, architectural writer and a former Croydon treasure. I've just found out that he's now a South London treasure. Uh, speaking on outskirts, exploring the Green Belt. He's going to come up and say hello, and then I'm going to grab someone quickly who can really quickly sort out this PowerPoint. So uh, please welcome John Grimewell. Hello. 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 Um, so I try and do IT support. That's always fun, isn't it? Big reveal. Marvellous. Hello. Hello. Thank you very much for coming. There's loads of you on this warm, lovely evening. And this evening I'm going to be talking about outskirts, living life on the edge of the green belt which is in some ways a follow-up to Concretopia, my book about the rebuilding of Britain after the Second World War. And I wrote that book to try and explain that how the housing estate that I grew up on outside Croydon had come to be built and how town centres had been rebuilt uh, and how new towns had been created. Uh, but there was something missing. Uh, that was quite an urban story and, and where I lived was sort of strange mishmash of kind of urban and countryside and suburbia. It sort of had all of those things going on at once. And I didn't really understand that. And I sort of slightly parked that as a, as a thing to think about with Concretopia. And then with Outskirts, um, I wanted to find out whether the countryside had been, had been modernised in this period too. Um, we're used to people talking about um, the spectacular bits of our countryside, really. Uh, national parks, rugged Scottish highlands, or the wild moors. But for most of us, our open space is much nearer our towns and cities. It's a tame version of the country, the Green Belts. Uh, and this evening, I'm going to take you through what the Green Belts actually are, how they came about, and what's happened to them. And also, what it was like for me growing up on the edge of one of them. Uh, in a Croydon housing estate called New Addington. So I grew up on what I thought was the last road in London. At the end of our front garden there was a privet hedge and beyond the rickety pavement there lay a narrow grass verge, street lights that glowed a dim orange at dusk, the road and then country. Behind our maisonette New Addington, the, the council estate, stretched back for a couple of miles, but from our front garden, there was little evidence of any of that. We called it, the, this is literally the view opposite, uh, only taken uh, about a year ago. Uh, we called it the woods. It was a valley of farmer's fields uh, surrounded by trees with patches of dense woodland round and about and this little sort of barrier of trees in front of it.
Now, uh, I often think that living on the outskirts, not, uh, not part of the town, not the country, made us feel a little bit marooned. We never really felt part of New Addington, and the countryside remained a mystery to us too. My mum, Marge, had a disability, which um, meant that there were things that weren't for us. No public transport, steep steps or rugged terrain. And her bird-watching skills, which were prodigious by the time I was growing up, were honed from the kitchen window while boiling spuds or frying chips. And John, my cuddly car mechanic dad, seemed to travel through life in a bit of a daze. And they'd both grown up in the wartime slums of Battersea. And uh, when I came to research it, their journey to the outskirts of London in 1969, the year before I was born, seemed to mirror the story of the Green Belt itself. I had a rebellious elder brother, Ian, and a sporty middle one, Paul. I was the quiet one, with a bowl haircut so heavy it was as if the bowl had been left permanently attached. <laughs> now, if mountains and locks are the cinemascope version of the countryside, the Green Belt is the sitcom. Cosy, familiar and cyclical, to be seen in regular short bursts, a frilly green doily around the edge of our cities. Its wildlife is the grey squirrel, fox and wood pigeon, rather than the beaver, otter or wild cat. In England, the Green Belt accounts for 13% of our total land. In Scotland, 2%. Northern Ireland, 16%. But what are they for? Are they to preserve magnificent countryside or to protect the environment? Not at all. The Green Belt is simply there to stop towns spreading out and eating up the countryside and to stop towns nearby each other merging together. Now, I've always felt it sounds a bit like a superhero, the Green Belt. <laughs> you can see it lined up with the rest, the Silver Surfer, Green Lantern, Black Widow. And the Green Belt has, has the righteous purity of Wonder Woman and the alien serenity of Superman. It can make campaigners angry like Hulk. It's got a complex origin story. There are powerful opponents, wrongs to right, and cities to keep safe. Long before the 20th century, the idea of towns surrounded by belts of country came up time and again. God had a go in the Book of Numbers. Thomas More talked about them in Utopia. There were schemes by Elizabeth I, Oliver Cromwell, and Christopher Wren. One of my favourites was from 1829 by Scottish botanist John Claudius Loudon. He talked about surrounding the gin lanes of central London with a zone of open country a mile and a half out from St Paul's Cathedral. This meant demolishing built-up areas like Islington, Bethnal Green and Lambeth. London Thought it, uh, Loudon thought it might take 200 years to realise his plan, which would be in 12 years' time uh, today. And I did check before I came out, and it does seem that Jeremy Corbyn's house in Islington 
is safe. <laughs> now, I mentioned my mum was disabled. Victorian campaigners would have said that living in the city was the cause of her ailment. Groups like the Ladies' Sanitary Association, who have branches all over the country, and they published pamphlets on everything from what can the window gardens do for our health to everyday wonders of bodily life with numerous engravings. They took slum children to parks for parties away from the corrupting miasma of factories and workhouses. The most significant of these Victorian campaigners was Octavia Hill. And she wanted better housing, more open spaces in cities. And she even came up with the name, the Green Belt, in 1882. But the first practical step came from Ebenezer Howard, author of the 1898 book, Garden Cities of Tomorrow. This was Thomas More's Utopia as Haynes' Manual. Just five years after publication, Howard had begun to build the first garden city, Letchworth, in Hertfordshire. Which always seems amazing to me that he, so he had just been a government clerk, been working for Hansard. He'd written this book, um, imagining that you could kind of create these garden cities, that you would connect them up. And, and um, five years later, he'd gained enough followers and enough traction, the idea had gained enough traction, that people were willing to invest in building a whole ta experimental town based on it. It seems remarkable. I and mean, the trust in, in that book, in such a short space of time, and the influence of it is, is incredible. By 1909, he'd bought a 1,000 acres to be kept as farmland, in effect, Britain's first piece of green belt. I took a walk there with my partner, Adam. It was a ladybird book illustration come to life. Uh, there were immense bales of hay, electricity pylons, hedgerows of hawthorn and hazel. Beyond that ran Britain's longest road, the A1. It was an odd place. We saw black squirrels, a barbershop quartet, and empty packets of watsits and condoms. <laughs> Quite a party. <laughs> and we ended up in, in yellow ragwort, um, and pink rose bay willow herb, up to our bellies like a couple of nervous swimmers. From the willow herb was erupting the most delicate fluff, like, the ki like a king-sized duvet divesting itself of its contents, one feathery shred at a time. Forget Ebenezer Howard's plans, here was nature reclaiming a corner and exploding like the last fireworks of the night. Our Letchworth jaunt was exactly the kind to have annoyed country folk in the early 20th century. I would have every child required to pass an examination in country law and country manners before he left school, wrote charming controversialist Cyril Jode in 1938. The contentious divide between townsmen and countrymen, never women, is played out in countless books, pamphlets and articles and broadcasts throughout the 1920s and 30s, with commentators like Jode suggesting that evil townsmen should be boiled in oil for dropping litter, leaving gates open or picking wild flowers. And even if my family were beginners at being Greenbelt folk, 
my parents found unexpected benefits in country life. When coal became too expensive during the three-day week of 1973, John would head off down the lanes on a Sunday morning and forage for firewood. In Battersea, they'd have gone window shopping on a Sunday, save from temptation as the shops were shut. Now they took us for picnics. And occasionally there were disasters. My middle brother Paul broke his left arm during a game of football in the park. Six weeks in plaster later, and at the end of the school holidays, he had the cast cut off. Free at last! A gang of his mates gathered, eager to play outside. Paul ran straight from the car, over the road, through some tall grass, and broke his right arm, <laughs> falling over a tree stump. And my poor old dad hadn't even taken his shoes off. Like many urban fringes, a walk around the woods near New Addington today can be a depressing experience. The ground thick with oak leaves, through which blew polythene and canvas, builders' debris thrown out of sight. Sacks of rubble sit among the dead ferns and sprouting bluebells. In the bare branches of shrubs are the tangled remains of plastic bags. Accumulated decades of trash mingling with the wildlife laying partial claim to the woods. This is one consequence of town and country existing, existing cheek by jowl, the hard edge of the green belt, making the nearby urban area intensely built up and densely populated. The most hated form of townsman was the rambler. After all, for the countryman, Walks were part of an endless stewardship operation and certainly nothing to do with fun. In 1933, as an adjunct to the craze for rambling, John Betjeman proposed a new series of car-based travel guides to England's counties. The Shell Guides were part of an industry helping travellers explore the unspoiled countryside while simultaneously spoiling it. We didn't own a Shell Guide, we had No Through Road, the AA book of country walks, which was a ring binder containing books, maps and sheets that could be removed for a trip to arm the expectant driver and rambler. Finding one's way in the British countryside has never been so easy given care and common sense, it said. It never left the house. <laughs> given how tough her wheelchair made exploring our bit of the green belt, the gateway to the outdoors for Marge in the early 70s was her Invercar, a three-wheeled invalid carriage. It was one of the most visible signs of the handicapped in Britain. Out in the country, she would pull over, open the door and look out at the scene before her. Marge's next car, a mini traveller, quickly began to feel as if it had become part of the countryside itself. It stank of damp, Mud and leaves came inside, never to leave. The felt runners for the sliding back windows grew moss. By now, we were naturalised greenbelt dwellers. The lichen on the car proved it. In the interwar era, planning rules were lax and laissez-faire. If you had enough money, you could build more or less anything anywhere and private developers pushed that to the limit. 
building mock Tudor semis outside of every town and city in the country. The Metropolitan Railway Company had to go at building new houses around the stations they were opening in northwest London. In 1915, they even started to produce guidebooks. The marketing department called these new suburbs Metroland. It was a romantic fantasy of middle-class country walks, cheery pubs, rolling landscapes. It was also, and I can't stress this enough, the main reason that green belts came into existence. This was ribbon development, suburbia stretching out along roads and rail lines and eating up the countryside at an alarming rate. I confess I'm a great lover of the countryside, said Sir Harold Bellman, chairman of the Abbey National. He was present at a lunch to celebrate the turf cutting of my housing estate, what was known at the time rather grandly as Addington Garden City, 1935. I never see trees felled without a pang, he said, or some cherished beauty spot go to the builder without some heart burning. If it comes to whether I would rather see a lovely piece of country laid out as an estate, or see people living in unlovely mean streets in the centre of a great city, unhesitatingly, I'm in favour of breaking up the country and building. 860,000 homes had been built in rural areas of Britain between 1919 and 1939, most of which were intended for rich middle-class incomers. A letter to the Manchester Guardian in uh, 1935 illustrated the problems facing South East Lancashire. Already it's difficult to determine where one town ends and another begins, and yet the tumour goes on spreading. Councils in Sheffield to London, Manchester to Glasgow began to protect land around their cities uh, uh, in the 1930s. The London County Council even got a Green Bell Act passed in Parliament in 1938. When you look at a map of any of these early Green Belts from the time, it's a bit of a shock to see how small and isolated those pockets of land actually are. They were not the continuous green belts we know today. They're like, more like a handful of confetti blowing around the edges of our cities. War changed everything. Town planner Patrick Abercrombie was drafted into write plans for the rebuilding of London, Plymouth, Glasgow, Hull and Bath. And he was all over the green belt. It was a culmination of a lifetime's work for him. Back in 1926, he'd set up the Council for the Preservation of Rural England. One of its more lasting contributions was the 1934 Code of Courtesy for the Countryside, or the Country Code. These days, it's a downloadable PDF on gov.co.uk. Respect, protect, enjoy, runs the headline. And you can hear an unfortunate echo of the nuclear attack information campaign <laughs> of the 1970s, Protect and Survive. <laughs> to create his plan for London, Abercrombie's young team had a laborious task to complete. They drove to the outskirts, like New Addington, to mark down on a map exactly where the houses ran out. It's like a Wallace and Gromit version of Google Street View. 
And that's actually where, how the edge of London and the beginning of the Green Belt was formulated in, in that kind of basic fashion. The resulting Green Belt Ring for London will be five miles wide and swallow large towns like Romford, Sevenoaks and Watford. <coughs> but if you lived on, in, on industrial cities north of Stratford-upon-Avon, there was help at hand too. A hefty tome called Conurbation was published in 1948, focusing on the problems of the Midlands. Four pages of photos in Conurbation catalogue a train journey taken between Birmingham and Wolverhampton through the industrial wastelands of the black country. It shows 9,000 acres scarred by quarries, mines, spoil heaps and tips. Now we're used to seeing pictures of people struggling through blitz cities with rubble and destruction all around. But in some ways, these pictures of the dereliction of our countryside are more unexpected and more shocking because of it. But maybe this, this waste ground could be reclaimed. By the 1950s, one of Britain's foremost landscape architects was Sylvia Crow. Her job was to regenerate this sort of derelict landscape. The planner's attitude to any space near a town, she wrote in 1956 in this book, should be, can I plant trees on it? If not, why not? She, heard, uh, she overheard a farmer's wife expre expressing delight at all of the green space in London compared to her rural home. Lovely to have all that grass to walk on in the parks. At home, you couldn't set foot off the road. The red letter day for green belts in Britain was the 25th of April, 1955, when the new Minister for Housing, Duncan Sands, asked county councils across the country for proposals for the creation of clearly defined green belts wherever this is appropriate. And that was followed up by this circular that went round. And uh, here's the three things that constitute a green belt. Sands' successor, Henry Brook explained, the very essence of a greenbelt is that it's a stopper. It may not be all very beautiful and it may not be all very green, but without it, a town would never stop. One of the most charming mementos of the greenbelt is this ministry booklet from 1962, available for four shillings from HMSO. Here's a lovely picture of it of Maple Lodge Sewage Disposal Works in Rickmansworth. By now, the map was showered with areas of outstanding natural beauty, sites for special scientific interest, national parks and country parks. These were all about the quality of the landscape, picturesque, environmentally important and accessible too. Meanwhile, poor old Greenbelt can be as ugly, useless and barren as you'd like. And there's no point telling the Greenbelt to cheer up love, it might never happen, because it already has. Towns have been built, pylons erected, residents have trampled it and dumped mattresses and burned out cars. If you want a pretty bit of skirt, go and wolf whistle an AONB, or practice your Sid James Act in front of a site of special scientific interest. <laughs> My favorite landscape writer, Nan Fairbrother, pointed out that while villages might appear unspoiled, they could only exist 
thanks to the wider industrial economy, from power stations to factories, and she called it environmental cheating, preserving one landscape at the expense of another. Not that she was soft on townies like me either. Planners like us, she wrote, may dream of wheat waving gold to our doorsteps and of mild-eyed cows gazing over our garden fences, but we are all of us urban generations, out of touch with any practical knowledge of cows and wheat fields. I mean, just ask Theresa May. <laughs> By the 1970s, change was in the air. There was a turning away from mass-produced modernity towards the handcrafted values of John Ruskin and William Morris. One contemporary critic described the change from Friends of the Earth to Laura Ashley fabric designs, the vogue for wholemeal bread or corn dollies, the enthusiasm for self-sufficiency and turning 1960s tourist shops into 1970s craft centres. The environment was becoming a battleground Chemicals and new farming techniques were changing our landscape forever, and there was enormous pressure, pressure to build new homes too. The Green Belt is not some sort of shrine at which one must bow and worship in uncritical and ec ecstatic adulation, said a dissenting voice at the inquiry for East Merseyside's Green Belt in 1960. What the local people of East Merseyside needed was new houses, not some semi-derelict land protected by some distant Lancashire county planners. Then there was the planner who wrote in the Times of city executives fighting tooth and nail to gain a foothold in the Green Belt. Once secure, wrote the official, they bar passage to all who would follow them and henceforth the loudest champions of Green Belt inviolability. And today, we might call them NIMBYs. But that word and the phrase, not in my backyard, didn't exist until the late 1970s. NIMBYs are never self-declared, you might think. I'm an environmentalist. You are a protester. They are NIMBYs. But one activist I spoke to was having none of that. Not only was she a NIMBY, she said proudly, she was also a note, which means not over there either. <laughs> Who lives in the Greenbelt is an interesting question. A 1963 book gave me a particularly vivid impression. It begins with a boy called Barney falling into a chalk pit and through the roof of a, the makeshift home of a young caveman. This is one of the Greenbelt's most celebrated modern legends, Clive King's Stick of the Dump. Inspired by chalk pits near his village home that were being slowly turned into landfill sites, King imagined a prehistoric society left undisturbed in the Kent woodlands. From the first page, I was hooked. The setting could have been my backyard, the edge of a built-up area beside some scrappy woods filled with old rubbish. It placed magic in a realm I understood, an unremarkable boy on the edge of the green belt discovering something amazing. Years later, off the night bus, fresh from an evening spent clubbing in Vauxhall, I found a badger shuffling about on the grass opposite our council house. There it stood, squat and sturdy as a coffee table, just beyond the Astras, Escorts and Sodium Lights. Having grown up on the edge of London's countryside, it was a typical Greenbelt encounter between wide-eyed clubber and ancient forest dweller. Yet like Stig's world, much of our Greenbelts 
aren't green at all. Of course, there were gravel pits, landfill sites, refineries, caravan sites, sewage treatment works, research establishments, prisons, airfields, nuclear bunkers. On a small suburban road near Orpington, I saw one of the bleakest. There was a tall industrial gate beyond which lay the grim mess of a recycling yard. An outcrop of tall, slim Leylandi trees, twice the height of the nearby houses, formed a barrier. Behind the tall trees, but rising high above, stood an enormous pile of rubbish. This frightening peak of ash grey refuse made the houses feel tiny and insignificant. Mad Max in Brookside Close. Then there were the Greenbelt Roads. Incredibly, almost every inch of the M25 isn't just in the Greenbelt, it is Greenbelt. London's Orbital Motorway opened in 1986. Thousands of metropolitan Greenbelt citizens couldn't believe that their sacred designation might not save it. One casualty was Sir Horace Cutler, M25 champion and head of the Greater London Council. He was surprised to learn it would pass through the grounds of his Buckinghamshire home. But of course the oddest things in the Greenbelt are people. One of the first places I'd gone to research my book was the head office of the Campaign to Protect Rural England. A very serious meeting ensued, I made loads of notes, and as I got up to leave, one man remained lurking in the doorway. You should investigate dogging, he said, and hurried off. I don't even know you, I thought. <laughs> but it confirmed something that I might have guessed. The green belt is stuffed with sex. Green belts played a significant role in the emergence of naturism. There were camps in suburban, suburban St Albans, leafy Orpington. Later, the arrival of the internet in the 90s and social media in the noughties helped create a boom in a different sort of exhibitionism, group sex. The media cottoned onto it in 2003. A new phrase entered the Oxford English Dictionary four years later. Dogging was coined by the police after the behaviour of exponents who, if stopped, claimed to be merely out walking their dogs. Because of its proximity to towns, the Greenbelt has more than its share of dogging hotspots. By 2013, police estimated that there were 222 dogging sites across the UK, an astonishing 93 of which were in a single county. Surrey. <laughs> but sex wasn't the only inappropriate thing that we were doing in the Greenbelt. Here's Fulmer Grange, a charming brutalist college built in 1967 near Slough by the Cement and Concrete Association. It was a modernist's paradise and it was also built without permission. The council said the scheme was fantastic, but not in a good way. They demanded demolition. But then there's a tale of Honeycrock Castle. In 2000, farmers Robert and Linda Fiddler decided to build a mock Tudor fort, cannons and ramparts and all, in the grounds of their farm in Salfords in Surrey. Because it might not get planning permission, Robert and Linda did what any reasonable people would do and secretly constructed it anyway behind bales of hay stacked 40 feet high. <laughs> In 2006, they removed the hay and Honeycrock Castle was suddenly out in the open. 
Robert had been hoping to take advantage of a law which stated that because no one had objected within four years, it would be allowed to stay. The council pointed out, not unreasonably, that because no one had been able to, no one had been able to see it, uh, no one had been able to object, and they demanded it was demolished. An epic High Court battle ended in 2015. Mr Justice Dove informed Robert that he had to demolish Honeycrock Castle by the following June or go to prison. It will break my heart to demolish it, he told the Independent. It's like asking Rembrandt to rip up his best oil painting. <laughs> now, the green belt's not for everyone. Take my eldest brother, Ian. I went from sanity to insanity crossing that road, he told me. He was recalling the day our family moved to New Addington in 1969. It was like everything a child could want. There were trees, fields of wheat. I'd never seen anything like this. He paused. That's when I became agoraphobic. I remember it, having to walk backwards under the tree because it was too big. Too much sky. So much sky. To a seven-year-old from a block of flats in Battersea, it was a shock from which you would never recover. The advantages of greenbelt living, space to play, country air, wildlife, were undone. He still lives in a maisonette on the estate. I haven't been out, properly out, over the woods for a while, he said. I doubt if I've left the house this week. I didn't leave the house last week. I know that. Last time he ventured over the woods, some years back, he was bitten by an adder. So perhaps he'd been right all along. <laughs> back in the 80s, a succession of environment, environment ministers attempting to curb the Green Belt, and they teamed up with a new mega-builder called Consortium Developments, who wanted to create 15 new villages in the southeast alone. The consortium was vast, ten developers, including Barrett, Bovis, Lang, Tarmac and Wimpy. It was like Marvel's Avengers Assemble, although thankfully without spandex. <laughs> Battered by the press, campaigners and their, particularly their own backbenchers, Thatcher's ministers backed down on, on every Greenbelt reform that they proposed and none of those new villages were built. Up until the Thatcher era, we had a fairly large planning department, a retired planner told me. We were able to get ahead of the race and do forward planning and actually work out where new development ought to go. That's been lost now because planning departments have been cut and cut and cut. There aren't enough to do planning in the way it ought to be done. And I don't think it's adequate to rely on the market because they'll go where they can sell them. This is the situation we find ourselves in now. The strategic planners who created the Greenbelt, all long dead, their roles scrapped. The grown-ups have left the stage. The Greenbelt staggers on. Poor decisions are made by local councils in thrall to private developers, and both housing and environmental crises are left for the market to exploit for short-term gain. One of the things I like most about the Greenbelt, though, it's that underneath all that anger, sex and bad behaviour, it's actually just a little bit boring. It occupies a similar place in the British psyche as Reader's Digest, Rich Tea Biscuits and Blue Peter. 
rather prim and dependably unexciting. And talking of boring, currently housing expert Colin Wiles estimates that 2% of British land is given over to golf courses, almost double the amount used for homes across the country. They're a classic greenbelt staple of no environmental value whatsoever. But the most greenbelt thing I've seen lately are these rubberized or concrete mesh you can get to create car parks or to stop weeds growing and the soil from eroding. These geosynthetic grass protection systems all have brilliant names. Grid Force, Eco Grid, Bod Pave 40. All the appearance of green, but with none of the troublesome consequences of growth. Maybe one day this is what the countryside will be. Rolling fields of Bodpave 40 and meadows underlaid by grid force. Like the internet, it often seems that the green belt is a handy stand-in for God. Maybe we think, surrounded by such a vast and unknowable presence, everything might just be alright after all. Welcome to the Garden of Eden, where the snakes have been tamed and the apples have been nationalised. Growing up where I did, it was easy to feel that the town didn't want me and that the country wasn't too bothered either. Now I'm older, it feels that this, this classic greenbelt scenario of being trapped between conflicting things is what living in the 21st century is all about. And maybe we can't have it all, town and country, but we can't afford to lose it either. And it's a false choice, of course, to decide between them. Both are essential for our continued existence. And the green belt, for all its flaws, is just a way of trying to police that. It had been my brother's, brother Paul's idea to get Marge and John a sightseeing trip by helicopter for their wedding anniversary. They left from Biggin Hill, one of many airfields to be found in our green belts. Marge was carefully lifted into the small copter and John clambered in after her with his camera. I watched them fly over the green valley towards our house and they were only gone for half an hour, but in that time they saw the lot. New Addington in its sea of green fields, the metropolis of Croydon, the urban mass stretching all the way to the Thames, they reached the river, circling above the abandoned hulk of Battersea Power Station, over the crowded streets where they'd grown up. A few minutes in the air, and they'd, taken, they'd travelled the short distance that their lives had taken, and the gulf between those worlds. Before they could process what they'd seen, the pilot turned the craft around and took them back to the outskirts. I wheeled Marge's chair out to meet them. It's so green, they kept saying, all over the city. It's so green. Thank you very much. Right. Thank you, John. That was great. Um, John's book is available out in the foyer on the way out. Um, but we've got time for a couple of quick questions, uh, comments, re dogging reminiscences. What, 
actually, no, don't, not that one. Um, or anything you'd like to share about the Greenbelt? It's really weird for me that um, the two maps were shown. One showed the area where I grew up, and one shows you can just about see where I live now there. So I didn't realize how tied to the Greenbelt my life was. No coincidence. It's Coincidence. all, it all, it all. It all means something. I'm being followed by the great big shaggy green belt monster. Um, just hands up if anyone has got a question or comment, or if not, we can all just go to the pub. We're not going to the pub yet. Brilliant. Thanks for putting your hand up. Thank Hello. you. Um, oh, is, this, is this working? Yeah. Brilliant. Um, so uh, I really enjoyed your book, uh, Concretopia, and I was wondering oh, if you had any observations to make about the, the housing on the outskirts, and in particular how the, the old and sometimes ancient buildings get sort of absorbed with the, the building up of the, the new buildings. Yeah, the, well, it's interesting that the arrival of the Greenbelt in that post-war period I sort of meant that the building up to the edge of it has got very concentrated, so um, and in sort of increasingly so. So all the gap sites have all been taken up, and because the green belt is protected, there was a whole there was a whole thing that the in the um, London plan that Abercrombie wrote. He talks a lot about rounding off. There's this whole thing about, you know, if something already exists, but it's a bit of a mess and it isn't finished, you could round it off. So New Addington is a classic example of that, actually, where, you know, sort of showed, you know, the, the beginning of Addington Garden City, you know, lovely Addington Garden City in the 30s. And then he absolutely slags off New Addington, you know, or what has been built of it in the County of London plan, or, sorry, the Greater London plan in 44. And then... Um, but he talks about how it could be rounded off. He sort of complains that, you know, there's no, you know, there's no train station, there's nowhere for people to work, you know, people have only got, there's only this one road where you can get a bus in and out. You know, it's like a, it's like a sort of isolated island. And um, so the, it's allowed to be kind of rounded off and the council sort of expand it a little bit. They buy it off this private developer, they expand it a bit. Um, and then the edges of it are fixed. And New Addington gradually becomes more and more dense over that period of time and it's quite, in itself is a kind of quite an interesting little capsule of sort of what happens in lots of places actually in that they try out kind of everything because there's nobody really nobody in Croydon Council seems to really care about New Addington in that period so they you know let's try a few tower books let's try a few kind of low-rise things let's try some sort of um, terraced houses let's try you know so you get a bit of everything going on and you can sort of Travelling around, it was fascinating sort of travelling around to different places around the country. And it was amazing how similar that landscape is in so many places on the edge of the Greenbelt, except the places that are actually quite posh, where they've kind of, you know, remained sort of very leafy, you know, and that kind of transition between them, you know, these kind of large houses and the Greenbelt is, is quite gentle because they were quite large gardens or whatever. And you do see that today with you know, campaigns to sort of prevent things being built on Greenbelt tend to be, you know, strongest in places where there are lots of kind of lawyers and professional people who can kind of, you know, who live locally and can write very eloquent letters to the local authority. And then places where, you know, poor people live and, you know, maybe they don't feel as confident to kind of do that kind of, you know, writing to the council. Places like New Addington, you get, um, you do get kind of more kind of expansions and more building happening. So there seem to be kind of two sort of two ends of it really one which is this kind of quite preserved bit which are these um these kind of uh sort of 
quite grand houses. And then the... I guess it's the new development as well, and there are kind of like bits of the green belt that are being kind of used for kind of plonking bits of new housing on, and you see you see that happening quite a lot now, and that a lot of that is fueled by the fact that councils have got no money because their their funding has been cut. They don't really know how to make money. Um, there are bits of the green belt that maybe nobody's going to complain about too much if it gets built on, but they would really complain if they built here. So they won't build there, won't build here, but they build it here, uh, and they might get away with it. They, you know, a developer might give them a lot of money. You know, they might not get the money directly because they might not own the land, but they might get the money from you know increased rates and you know the fact there'll be more people living there and all that stuff. So. I guess you also get those kind of little new build things. At the moment, they are kind of of a scale. They're not kind of as mass, you know, and they're not huge in the same way that, you know, the sort of 1930s kind of big estates were sort of huge. But they are, you know, there is every potential through the fact that the government now has pushed all of the decisions back onto local government because they're all aware of what a poison chalice it is. I sort of briefly mentioned the 80s and, you know, sort of all the all various kind of housing ministers uh, during that period who attempted to, to completely uh, sort of reorganise what the Greenbelt was and reimagine what it was, who all basically found that they were, they were under siege from their own backbenchers who represented those areas that they were talking about reclassifying. And, and they were sort of so, they were so monstered, it became a bit of a graveyard of careers, that job, you know. There was sort of, people would kind of arrive and disappear quite quickly from that department during the 80s. And so now politicians should just hate, you know, hate getting involved with the Green Belt because it, it's such a, you know, it's such a uh, poison chalice to have that on your, on your desk. So if you could push that all out to a local authority and they can actually deal with those problems themselves... Um, then, you know, you can kind of go, oh, isn't it awful? No, we feel, we feel awful too. You know, oh, what a shame. You know, it seems to be kind of, you know, government policy at the moment to do that. Sorry, that was a really terrible answer to that question, though, wasn't it? <laughs> it was great. Well, two more people want to ask questions, so... Thank you. No, brave. You don't... Well, I don't know if it's a question, maybe. Um, I grew up in Newcastle where um, I remember learning about the Green Belt, I think probably in GCSE geography, and I just didn't get it because we had a city and then we had the Green Belt and then we had huge amounts of countryside around the Green Belt because there isn't another city probably for 80 miles. Yeah. I could look at a map and look at the Northwest and Midland and sort of understand why they might want to keep the city separate, but it always felt to me that you know, it was a completely pointless thing to do and actually it would have been a better thing for the city to be allowed to spread and develop and get bigger. So I wonder whether you sort of, you know, think that sometimes maybe the green belt, well, I sort of think Newcastle were just trying to pretend they were more important than they were. We were a big city, so we must have a green belt. Yeah, it kind of depends where they are as well. You know, the pressure on London's green belt is immense, you know, to sort of spread out. But the pressure on other green belts isn't the same at all. In fact, the one, one of the ones I like is the story of Dundee, who had a green Green belt, but got rid of it because they were like, oh, you know, fuck it, we don't need it. No one, no one's really, you know, no one's going to expand Dundee. And in fact, what was happening in Dundee was it was it, there was a sort of almost Detroit type thing going on where the centre of it was becoming slightly depopulated and people were moving out into the countryside quite a long way. And that, you know, so, and I guess, you know, maybe a similar thing is happening there. And, um, yeah, and it is, in some areas, it's an entirely crazy policy, you know, and it... But maybe also there's that weird thing where 
maybe the kind of gentleness of that policy is sort of what people like Patrick Abercrombie imagined the Green Belt was going to be, that it was going to be this quite gentle thing. And of course, what it's turned into is, you know, in certain places, it's this very conflicted thing that makes people angry, you know, on either side of this argument. Um, and actually, he probably didn't think that that was going to be the consequence of creating green belts. You know, that it was going to be this kind of fairly gentle barrier around the outside of towns, and you almost wouldn't, you almost would think, what's the point? You know, and that probably when they were first brought in, I imagine that that was the attitude that most people had towards them. That they weren't, that they weren't this kind of essential kind of battleground between two worlds. That they were something that was, that was just out there, and it just, you just thought, oh, good, it's just, you know, it's just keeping the city safe in some slightly abstract way from some slightly abstract problem that no one bothered to explain. Um, now, one of the things I really like about the Green Belt as well is the fact that it's entirely, it is abstract, that, you know, it's not like a country park or a national park, where if you go to a national park or a country park, you, you can barely move without tripping over a sign telling you you're in a national park or a country park. You know, you, but, of course, there's no sign saying it's the Green Belt. You won't go anywhere and say, oh, you're now entering the Green Belt. Nobody knows where the Green Belt is, really. We sort of feel like we do, and it's the name and the position of it makes you instinctively feel like, oh, well, I sort of get it. But, so we all sort of get it. And the thing that I was quite interested in researching it was, I thought, well, I, I didn't know that that was the Green Belt over the road. I didn't know, you know, that your field that, you know, you own and that whole area around there was Green Belt. I mean, how would you know? You know, I'm not, I wasn't, you know, a town planner. I didn't know any of that. And so I sort of felt like people talk about this stuff a lot, uh, about the Green Belt, and talk, people talk about protecting it. And, but I felt like nobody was really just explaining quite basic fundamental things about, like, even what it was or why it was there or when it was there or who made it and that kind of stuff. So... I feel like there's, a, there's an interesting story behind it, and I do like the fact that it is this, it's like a thought experiment that's been imposed on the land, and you sort of have to almost guess where it is and, you know, what effect it's having and all that stuff, because you don't, you know, there's nothing to tell you. It, like it, it is. It is like an art installation, absolutely. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, I guess it's like Rachel White Reed's house. It's all the stuff that's been taken away around the edge. Hello. Hello. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed your talk. Oh, cheers. Thank you. Um, I, uh, my, my in-laws own a, own a field where they, <laughs> where, where they keep horses. Um, <laughs> and up beautifully. On the, on the outskirts of Crawley. And I, okay. I wasn't aware. I, I thought it would be nice to put a caravan there and then mm. I, I could have somewhere to live that wasn't rented. And I looked it up on the council's website and it turns out that it was Greenbelt and it was coloured green on their, on their map. Um, but I wondered, and I loved your, your infilling of, of the grey or the, the city. You could infill the, the grey and mm. the things about the name, why the name matters and the green belt is protected. Where does the, where does the brown, brown field fit in? Does that fit into a story? Is that a place where things are more fluid or permitted or...? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can, you know, you're positively, positively encouraged to build on brownfield sites and they are... Um, it's sort of interesting, really, because so if you look at, like, old episodes of The Sweeney, it's a great place to start any of this, always, whatever the subject is, old episodes of The Sweeney, but always they're skidding around in the middle of the city around kind of massive great big kind of bomb sites and stuff you know in the mid 70s places that hadn't been built up and by the late 
by the late 70s, early 80s, um, London had lost two million of its population from 1939. It kind of had, had gone away. Um, and, uh, and that population has only really come back now. We've only really kind of reached that number again about five years ago or something. Um, and uh, the interesting thing about that is that it meant that there was no pressure to fit, build on all of these things. But that has slowly happened. All of those bomb sites and all of those things that were still empty in the 70s, weirdly, um, have all gone. What's left of brownfield sites, which are sort of slightly different, they tend to be like old, you know, factories and the kind of the kind of land that the Olympic Park was built on, which was sort of like old industrial land that's sort of reclaimed in, you know, by kind of by by being kind of built on. And um, the trouble that developers have with brownfield sites is that usually it's got some problem with it, like it's polluted or it's got an enormous amount of clearing up of that stuff to do, which costs a load of money. Or wouldn't it be so much nicer and quicker if we could just build on that lovely green field there where we just have to dig into it and put the foundations down and it's done. Whereas, you know, a brownfield site's an absolute pain in the arse. So people don't, developers don't like building on brownfield sites generally. And also the other thing is a brownfield site tend not to be nice shapes you know they tend to be like little weird bits that people have to kind of agglomerate together and you know you can't build anything that satisfyingly kind of neat because everything's you know a bit higgledy-piggledy so um so brownfield sites are these things that obviously john prescott is the person most associated with brownfield sites you know he was utterly obsessed with them and you know sort of barely uttered a sentence you know in for about 10 years and didn't include the words brownfield sites in it um and um like, actually, like NIMBY, it's one of those phrases that came from the US as well, so we've kind of imported it. Um, and uh, it's, it's a use... There is lo so there's still loads of brownfield sites. There's absolutely loads of brownfield sites still to be built on. Whether they are practical or, you know, whether people ever will build on a lot of them is another matter, you know. Developers don't want to build on them, you know. They are those things, you know, when people talk about land banking, they're a classic bit of bit of land that has been land banked because people buy it and then they're like oh you know it's a bit like those people you see on homes under the hammer who kind of regret you know they go and interview them and they say why did you buy this falling down house and they were like oh we thought we were bidding on the hairdressers and we got this you know it's a bit like that with brownfield sites you know you've got a lot of developers who've ended up with land that they don't really want to you know they've they've done some investigating and it's, not, you know, it's a lot of money and time and effort to, to sort, sort it out, so it sort of doesn't happen. Um, but. Thank you. Um, recently, I went to a talk by Peter Barber, and he talked about his 100-mile city proposal, which is about redefining the edge um, and creating a very dense sort of ribbon of, of uh, development. I know it's a kind of theoretical, it's an idea, yeah. but I, um, I don't know if you're familiar with it and what I you know. thought about it. So it's about creating a, a ribbon of development on the okay. edge of London, all, all around London, and providing something like a million homes or something like that. But that would definitely be a, a different transition between the city and the country, mm, mm. different to what we have now. Yeah, and it's interesting that, because one of the things people complain a lot about with the Green Belt is that it, it's that unsatisfactory ending that you were talking about earlier, you know, that kind of, you know, place, sort of slight non-place bit that you get around the edge of cities, and, you know, couldn't we be using that to build on, you know, and that idea that, that 
you know, we've said this is the edge of the city for whatever reason, we don't want to kind of go beyond it, is very contentious now. And it's difficult, you know, it's, it is becoming more difficult for people to argue that you can't build on that. I guess the, the thing that people talk a lot about are sort of, you know, your, your kind of green wedge type idea where you have sort of green fingers of development around the edge sort of going in and out of cities rather than having a kind of you know more of the kind of neat edge that we're used to with the green belt I mean not that it is very neat when you actually look at it but theoretically you would actually have you know tendrils of development would come in and out a bit more but of course as with you know Loudon's plan in you know the mid-19th century the idea that the fingers are going to go into the city is really problematic because no one's going to demolish bits of the city that already exist. So those fingers are never really going to go in. You know, that isn't a... You know, there are a lot of interesting kind of theories, but a lot of them seem to be almost impossible to actually achieve, I think. Also, nobody's really brave enough to do anything about the Greenbelt at the moment anyway. You know, everyone's terrified of, of doing it. And there's no... You know, the people that created the Greenbelt, the whole kind of series of very senior strategic planners that we had, we don't have anyone like that anymore. We got rid of, you know, both Tories and Labour sort of got rid of those layers of planners. And now there isn't anyone to make a decision. You know, the grown-ups have left the stage, you know, as I said earlier. And there isn't, there's nobody around to kind of say, well, okay, that's a great idea, let's do it. You know, there is, so because there isn't anyone that can do that, we, you know, we can't, you know, we, there's no chance of any of that stuff ever happening. You know, until you get, you know, somebody reinstating planning on a big stage, which doesn't seem very likely. Well, not at the moment, anyway. Well, I was just going to go back to the the, the farming in the, in the in the green belt, and um, I, I, for the in the seventies and eighties, I worked for the milk marketing board, so uh, some of these issues came up. Um, and I remember, but going further back, I remember as a kid, uh, Cleden Hills near South Shields, where I grew up, uh, on a sunny day. The, farm, the, the farmer couldn't do anything because everybody would sort of kind of drift up onto his, his grass and sit down. And, but that's the problem with the green belt is people see a, an open field and they think it's theirs. And so I don't think it's the, as much the farmers retreating as the public driving the farmers out from that, that buffer zone. And you get fly tipping these days mm. is a big problem. Um, but the other thing is, is that as farming margins have gone down and down and down, and you get these smaller fields for um, basic arable use, it becomes too small to be economically viable. Yeah, yeah. For dairy, you get problems of people attacking your cows, and you, you also get, again, the problem that you can't run a big enough herd again to make a dairy farm viable and so it gets eaten away it's a sort of bit like a well, I suppose cancer isn't quite the right word but it is a it is a sort of attrition a, a war mm. of attrition against farms so that was more an observation than a yeah. comment but I, I just felt you were making it sort of oh the farmers have retreated but no I think the farmers have been driven out yeah no and I agree and uh, certainly the farm you know the farmers that I spoke to said you know did you know agree with you you know would say that you know people were I mean one of them was sort of talking a lot about how kind of you know they get kids kind of scramble biking all over you know one of the fields and he has to kind of constantly find new ways of blocking it so it's this kind of you know this sort of slight war between you know sort of it's a bit kind of wily coyote you know they're sort of you know he does this one thing they work out that you can get around this way you know he does that and then they 
you know. So there's all that stuff going on. So, you know, he was finding it very difficult to continue farming right up to the edge of the estate as a result, yeah. Last question. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, what I find, f like, wonderful and fascinating about your work and your presentation tonight is that it's, you know, it's steeped in a real acute knowledge of planning, but it's also really nostalgic as well, and I, I find that quite enjoyable. And it's what, what I really want to be clear about it, are you um, kind of arguing, I guess, for, you know, do you want us to conserve the green belt because of functional reasons, or do you want us to appreciate it for its kind of, are you making an, an emotional appeal for us to appreciate it more, or both? Well, I think one of the things I wanted to do, a, a bit like with Concretopia, was try and write about something where people tend to be very kind of polemical, you know, and kind of either on either side of an argument, and try and write something that was slightly more sensible, that was sort of trying to sort of discuss both of those things without being a polemic. And trying to write about the Green Belt without being a polemic is bloody difficult, actually, you know, because everybody you speak, everybody I went to interview was either really cross about it or loved it or, you know, was... And it was a bit of the same with Concretopia in a way, you know, in that people were so passionate about this stuff. You know, you would just kind of have all of this. So trying to kind of filter out some of that stuff so that we're left with a slightly more factual you know, account rather than it being too polemical was important to me, actually. Um, and so I didn't, what I didn't want to happen was I didn't want to end up with a book where at the end of it I said, and this is what we must do about the... You know, that would have been a real failure, I think, of what I was trying to do, which wasn't... I didn't want to write some high-handed book that ultimately said, oh, this is what we have to do. I just wanted to kind of explain what, what it was, what the problems were, what the people who live and work in these places think about it. And then, you know, everyone is a kind of grown-up. We can sort of go away and make our own decisions. I just felt like they, there's a lack of useful information about stuff like this, especially, you know, given that the media loves to present everything in a very kind of black-and-white type way. You know, the, the joy of writing a long-form book is that you can be as nuanced as you like, really. So I hope that I've ended up with something that's quite nuanced and doesn't have... You know, doesn't have all, doesn't pretend to have all the answers, and isn't kind of saying, oh well, you know, this is what, you know, this is what I think, therefore that's right, you know, which, I, you know, I'm, I was sort of desperate not to do really, because um, it feels like this is a subject that's been done a disservice by people talking about it in that way always, and nobody sort of standing back and hitting that small microphone. Um, thank you very much for coming. Uh, thank you very much, John Grimrod.